welcome to the Let the Stray Show, your one-stop destination for intriguing conversations with extraordinary individuals who are boldly navigating life outside the conventional norms. Our host, Scott Fullerton, is thrilled to embark on this journey of discovery with all of you. The Left a Straight Show, we believe that every person's story is unique, and it's our mission to showcase the diversity of human experiences. We bring you the untold stories of fascinating people who identify as LGBT plus and allies, pushing boundaries, breaking stereotypes, and making a positive impact in our communities. On this show, we bring you a diverse lineup of inspiring guests, from activists to artists, and entrepreneurs to entertainers, and everything in between. We dive deep into their personal journeys, discovering the pivotal moment that has shaped their lives and careers. You can expect thought-provoking discussions on a wide range of topics, from LGBTQ rights, social justice to arts, culture, mental health, and more. Our guests are change makers who share their insights, challenges, and triumphs, igniting conversation that promotes empathy, understanding, and love. So whether you're part of the LGBTQ community or an ally looking to expand your knowledge and show your support, the Left to Straight show is for you. Together, we can build bridges of understanding and acceptance, celebrating the beauty of what makes us all unique. So sit back, grab a drink, and get ready for the show. Welcome back to another exciting interview right here on the Left of Straight Show. We talked to all your favorite people from entertainment, foodies, books, music, and advocacy, all in our LGBTQ community and straight allies. I'm your host, as always, Scott Fullerton. Today, we're touching on just about every one of those areas and going to a deep dive into the glamorous world of theater, drag artistry, cabaret, and the autobiography dishing on all of it. Our guest today is none other than the legendary, multi-talented, and utterly fabulous Charles Bush. From his groundbreaking plays such as the Tony-nominated Tales of the Allergist Wife, to Off-Broadway's Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, to Die, Mommy, Die, Charles' work has definitively transformed the theater. With his iconic drag roles and cabaret performances, Charles has been a beacon of the LGBTQ plus community, combining art, advocacy, and just the right amount of touch of glitter. His new autobiography, Leading Lady, a memoir of a most unusual boy, dropped last week and is getting amazing reviews. From his continuing search for a mother figure to that as of a rent boy for a year, to spilling the tea about such names as Joan Rivers, Rosie O'Donnell, Valerie Harper, and many more, get ready, dear listeners, for a whirlwind journey into the mind of one of the greatest playwrights, drag artists, and cabaret performers of our time. Please welcome Left to Straight Show for the very first time, the one and only Mr. Charles Bush. Charles, how we doing, sir? Wonderful. So great to see you. I am so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for an advanced copy of the book. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for that. Well, it's just a delight. You know, I worked in this book for 14 years. I oh my goodness! Fourteen years. I thought it was eight years, but my friend Kathy, who's sitting right next to me, she's she, she said no, it was fourteen because she was involved in typing it in the early days, and uh, so I'm just so thrilled that it's finally out there. You know, and it had been, and then it was kind of this uh, like delayed sex act because uh, you know, first the book was available for pre-sale on Amazon 
you know, for the last few weeks, but it wasn't right. kind of like, <laughs> it's about to happen. It's about to happen. And then I had to wait. You're, you're getting there. You're working up towards the climax, there. and all of a sudden it's released. Yeah. I love that. Now it's released. Yes. Well, it's so exciting to see you. Um, I, I've been doing some deep dive research. Of course, I've been following your work forever. I finally took your apartment home tour uh, the other day. That is an amazing feat just in and of itself. I can't believe all the everything you have along those walls and uh, just an amazing life you've led, my friend. Well, you know, when I was a kid, you know, watching TV, I just my I dreamed that someday I wanted to live in both uh, in the Wizard of Oz, Professor Marvel's caravan in the beginning of the movie, right? And and I also wanted to live in um, the movie Gigi, and now I do basically. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd say that's it's kind of it is sort of like a. That is crazy. Well, there's so much to talk about. And the thing I love about your book is it talks about your entire life so far, but it also jumps out of order. And I read so much stuff. I'm going to jump out of order a lot here. So I hope you don't mind. I'm ready to jump. I do want to start. I mean, you wrote your first play at 11 years old at summer camp. Talk to me about that. That's got to be crazy. It's sort of odd because, you know, I was never good in school, you know, and, uh, and I, when I, I, you know, writing a book, you, you do sort of see the whole shape of your life, and it's in a way that maybe you never did before. Uh, and and it does perplex me in a bit that um, a bit that in school I was just such a non-entity, and yet you know on the side I was writing full-length plays and and all this. <laughs> None of my teachers thought I was particularly interesting or or special. <laughs> so you know, I, but I kind of. I really did feel that if I can just get through childhood, I'm going to be okay. So right. uh, things things did work out. Yeah. Well, you write intensively about losing your mother at a young age, but how Aunt Lil kind of stepped in there as both like the protagonist and antagonist to your life for quite a few years there, did everything for you and also was there almost too much some of the time. But you write so lovingly of her and your sister Margaret and your other sister. I mean... Talk about revisiting all those memories. What was that like? Yeah. Well, one of one of the goals for me in writing the book was um, uh, I really wanted to create a, a, a full portrait of my aunt, who who was the most influential person in my life. She she really was. And um, at, at one point, I actually thought of writing a novel about her because her her whole life is so interesting. I got and uh, but that's not really what I do. And I knew I, right. I'd never be able to pull pull that off. But I, I, it was important for me in this book that there are a number of things I wanted to achieve. Uh, I wanted to be an enter, entertainment, you know, because I've met so many fascinating people. Uh, you know, I've been both in the sort of drag world, but also the, the theater world. And right. I've been accepted by by both in a rather unique way. So uh, I wanted to to convey that duality of my life. I wanted it to be a, a portrait of Aunt Lillian. Um, what, what else? Uh, but th- those are kind of the, the, the big goals of it. Well, it's an amazing uh, hearing the stories about her and everything she did for you and your family after your mom passed away, even before your mom passed away, when she's helping your mom out. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing I found is I didn't know about all your sketch work and your amazing uh, ability as an artist. I mean, you actually went to an art school. 
But yeah. I think that one of my favorite stories is there's when you found out you got accepted, you just dropped the books and walked out of that class. That's kind I of my, that. my greatest triumph of my life. But we should explain <laughs> that to uh, to our audience here, just that um, I was living first uh, in in a suburb of New York called Hartsdale, which is a kind of a conservative you know, suburban community. And we, we had a series of terrible tragedies in my family from 1962 to 65, starting when I was uh, eight years old, basically. You know, when my mother died and my father's parents, my grandparents died, who I didn't particularly know, but, and then my mother's older sisters, both their husbands died. And, and you know, it was very traumatic for a, a kid. You know, it's kind of like, who's next? You know, I felt like I was living in an Agatha Christie mystery and who's, who's the next to, to go? And is it, is it me? You know, it, it was really uh, more more and more. I realized just how how traumatic that was. Uh, but then, um, you know, but fortunately, you know, I had this remarkable aunt who lived in Manhattan and who was uh, she was part of my life from the very beginning, as you said. And and uh, and then um, by the time I was fourteen and going to, going into eighth grade. I, re I really was kind of in another world and flunked me out of school. And I don't know what would have become of me had this remarkable woman not stepped in and, and just um, took me to live with her in New York City, ultimately adopted me legally. And, right. um, and her goal really was, uh, as much as she needed to be needed, her, her ultimate goal was my independence. That, that really was it. She was not this kind of clinging person who wanted to sort of dominate me or, or you know that that was not the thing it was to get me to stand on my own feet you know and she did such an amazing job i mean you you go through these schools then you end up at northwestern university and she kind of ushers you there and then lets you kind of start living your life right yeah, yeah no very very much so although she kept her involvement i mean she was uh later when i finally came back to new york i uh from chicago where Northwestern was, and started my career. She was always kind of my um, project manager. I guess that's the term <laughs> we would use today. Because when I was in, you know, it, it, when I was in high school uh, in New York City, I went to a. Um, it was called the High School of Music and Art, and uh, today it's called LaGuardia High. But in, in my day, it was the High School of Music and Art, and I was an art major because I, I just had a gift for drawing. Not really that much of an interest in it, really, honestly. But I, I just had a gift for drawing people and getting a likeness, and and uh, I was making was just when I was in art school in high school. Um, whenever I had to do any kind of project, you know, I, I'm a little bit inept, you know, and so uh, my aunt would figure it on her own, you know, why my woodcut wasn't printing right, or <laughs> you know, I would have the idea, and then she'd be like project manager, and she'd stay up you know, all night in her little kitchenette in our apartment, trying to figure out that to solve the problem of, you know, figure out what, what was the utensil, the tool I needed to create the line. And then the next right. morning I'd wake up and, and she'd have worked it out what, what the solution was. And then, then it was up to me then to create something wonderful with it. And it was, it was a very good collaboration. And then, then later when I started my career, uh, and had my theater company in the in the East Village. Like if I needed, um, we I was going to play Theodora, the Empress of Byzantium, and I needed <laughs> a dagger because I'm supposed to stab, you know, stab someone. You know, she looked in her pantry and she 
or her desk and found about six different letter openers that kind of look like daggers. And I'd choose to, to, to oh, take this one. It is remarkable. But I've been so lucky this way. You know, it's interesting looking back at my life um, uh, from, from far distance that uh, all my life, I've actually had someone who steps in and who has, I've had a series of people, Kathy here is, uh, is afraid to be on camera. Uh, she's, she's, well, she's been with me for 40 years, but you know, just a series of, of people who have very, a lot in common, this kind of, uh, uh, they're incapable of not giving 100%. I, I don't give 100%. I give 100% on stage, 120 <laughs> Sometimes too much, you know, and in my writing, but, you know, when I was at office temp or whatever, you know, I, I gave, you know, 40%. They, they never asked me back, <laughs> never asked me back. But, you know, Kathy and Carl and my aunt, you know, they, they cannot give less than 100% number what they do. And this kind of insane focus and concentration that they just, you know, and, and I, I'm the benefit of it because I, I'm the idea man. I got a lot of creativity, but uh, my aunt used to say, "Your your problem is is that you are you do, uh, don't understand the mechanics of living," and and I I don't you know, plugging putting in a light bulb is um, is sometimes a problem for me because um, as as my aunt also used to say, "Your your problem is is that you don't anticipate." So what is a problem for me is you know. Okay, screwing a light bulb is not so difficult, but when I when I went to the hardware store to get the light bulb, I forgot to find figure out exactly how you know what kind of light bulb it should be, you know, right. so the store and uh, wait a minute, it was it a small was the small end of the light bulb or was it the larger one? And, you know, so that's kind of the essence. But I'm talking probably too much here. I'm a little manic, but it's just. Um, Anyway, I have a lot. I have a lot of creativity, but I think we need to have those detail-oriented people in our life, especially when you're creative like that, because a lot of the the details aren't quite as important as the big picture, right? We're kind of looking at the big picture the entire time, and yes. we need these people around us to kind of grind us, ground right. us, and kind of make sure that we do look at those details. Because I'm the same way. I, I'm very high in the sky ideal man, but I need the people to ground me around me. Yes, and left with me sometimes is is what you're getting is kind of the gist of things because <laughs> you know somebody recently was saying oh and you know your your makeup on stage when you do drag is so perfect uh, i'm counting on people to being a little bit um farsighted you know and and, and there's we're not too close too you know there's nobody's that close to me because my makeup i'm not it's not that great but you know, it's good enough that if you're, you know, if you've got a little bit of glaucoma, you know, I look gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about this drag artistry. What kind of, when did you first kind of dabble in that? When did you realize that uh, I do this pretty damn well? Well, all my life, from earliest memory, I, I wanted to be on stage. That was the thing, to somehow be on stage in the theater. And, and I wasn't very good. When I was young, I lo I loved it too much. The kids who, in the school play, who just kind of get up there and just sort of do it, they were better than this kid who just oh, oh to be up here and then forgets all his lines because he's just in such a state of of rapture, <laughs> uh, you know. And then as a gay kid too, you know, in a certain sense, playing a straight part, you know, it's kind of like mm -hmm. Im imitating what a, 
a normal boy might be like. So it came off a little <laughs> bit animatronic. Uh, so that was good. But uh, when I was quite young, oh, maybe um, 16 or something like that, I, I started reading about this man named Charles Ludlam, who had his own theater company in New York City called the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. And he wrote and directed and starred his own plays. He had his own ensemble. And uh, and I finally, when I finally saw him perform his company, it, it was just, a, it was like I was hit by a tsunami of possibilities that I, we shared the same frame of reference of classic film and um, opera plots and uh, um, 19th century theater, which always fascinated me. Uh, and, and there were people in his company, young men playing female characters just because they were wonderful at it, you know, and, and they weren't like spoofing it or something. They just were playing the parts and I was absolutely dazzled. And, and then in that, I kept that in my, my mind. And, and then when I was in at Northwestern and I was a theater major and never cast in any play ever, uh, I, I started thinking, well, maybe I could, I could begin really focusing on my writing. And I always was writing plays. I just didn't really, it wasn't an overwhelming interest. And then I thought I could write parts for myself since nobody else is going to cast me in a play and, and a part that only I can play. Because I thought there are, there are these, see, this is 1972, let's say. And there was, there was no literature really uh, for gay male characters, and certainly nothing for gay women characters. Uh, so, um, I mean, there was the boys, the band basically, but this was before, Torch Song Trilogy and um, The Inheritance and, you know, Angels in America. There were no roles to to dream right. of playing. And and I knew that I that even even if there were, I don't think I would have been that great. I, somehow, when I wrote a play where I put female part, it unleashed some, something in me, a kind of freedom of, of self-expression and an authority and a fullness of character. I would never have had otherwise. And, and uh, you, you sort of have to know what, I think you have, probably in, in every form of line of work or certainly in the arts, I think it's important to know, you know what it is that you have to offer. I think it's so mm -hmm. easy for us in life to say, um, oh, I, I'm terrible at this. I, I can't do it because I'm this, or I can't do that because I'm that. You know, and, and we all do that. But I think if you can try to override that with, uh, Okay, what do I have to offer this particular situation that maybe nobody else can do? And uh, I think it's a healthy attitude. It's helped me. I love that. And Charles gave you two important life lessons from what I read in the book. Once, always get something in writing because it almost didn't happen. And two, when it's time to go big, it gives you a reason to go big. But you learned a couple lessons from Charles later on. Conversation. Yes. Yes. No. Oh, I see. Yes. Um, you know, I started off as a so solo performer because it was easier to try to just put myself out there than having a cast <laughs> of actors and, you know, set and all that. So I, was so I put together a, a solo show where I played all the characters in the play called Hollywood Conf Confidential. And I, um, and I, I was playing a tiny little cabaret room in New York City. And I invited Charles Ludlam to come see me. And he showed up one night uh, and then, but didn't come backstage afterwards. Then I read that he was receiving an award 
yeah, this thing called the the comedy comedy awards, and and so I dragged my sister with me, uh, my sister Margaret, to this place, and and I, I met him, and introduced myself. I said, I heard you came to my show, and thank you so much. And he said, Oh, well, I, I really enjoyed it, but I I don't really like going backstage. And and he said, What, what will you do next? And I said, I, I don't know, I guess try to find some other place to do it. And he had his own theater, you know, in, in the village. Right. He was in permanent repertory. And he said, oh, well, then you should do your show as late shows after my play. I couldn't believe it. You know, later I said to my sister, did you hear what I heard? And, and you know, and he said, when do you want to start? I, I said, uh, well, maybe in a, in a month. I thought that would give me time to try to publicize it of some, some sort. Then... Um, a couple of weeks went by and I had done, you know, everything I could, and, you know, putting up flyers and, and, um, you know, I went out, got on some, like a cable TV show. Well, it was before cable, but you know, that sort of thing. And right. yeah, a little bit as much press and an unknown could try to get. <laughs> you know? And, um, and I went backstage at his show one night. I, you know, remember me, you know, Char Charles and, and, uh, it's a little confusing because he's Charles and I'm Charles. But, uh, anyway, uh, and, I said, so, you know, I'm supposed to start my show here, you know, in a week. And I thought we, maybe we should arrange for a technical rehearsal. And he just looked blank. And he said, your, your show? And he, he didn't remember. Oh, it. no. And, I, and he said, um, I think you need to talk to our business manager. And <laughs> so I went to see, see this lady. Her name was Kathy Smith. And, you know, she was just overtaxed and underpaid and you know, sure and, i bet yes you know it's avant-garde theater and and she said oh i'm sorry we can't do anything with you we we used up our, our grant money and maybe next year and i was just hysterical i, I said you, you know you, you don't have to want to spend anything i i'll supply <laughs> i'll supply the box office person i'll supply the lighting person the sound person but please please and so she said oh, oh okay and and that's what i did my friends all you know came through and man the box office and ran the lights and sound and and so I, you know i did it and, you know about eight people showed up at each, each performance but but it was you know it was good just to say that i'd been there and actually right. um an important uh lgbt magazine called the advocate uh first interviewed sure. me at that time and and, and that established a very good relationship that um served me well over the next years so uh, you know but so i was sort of, in my idol's orbit for, for a while there. There you go. Well, you deserve all the accolades. Advocates have done some great stories on you in the past. And also, I mean, where did all this boldness come from? You talk about it a couple of times in the book, not only just going up to Charles afterwards, but I love your story on the Adams Family movie, just going up to Angelica Houston. That That's just bold, my friend. I love that. I know. I'm a very strange mixture of... Um, of shyness and fearlessness and i never <laughs> know when one is going to strike right. you know? no it's uh, it's, it's odd I think, yes because well particularly when you sometimes when you're young you know you you just kind of fear, fearless and and then you i don't know it, it, it's sort of odd being um kind of a dr drag personality sets you kind of apart and when you mentioned the adams family there was in the sequel the second film adams family values a uh, good friend of mine, Paul Rudnick, wrote the screenplay, and he right. wrote a part in for me in this movie as as their actress cousin, the Countess Aphasia Adams Dubarry, and so it was it was a, it was a cute little part. And I'd never been on a film set. Uh, 
I'd never been to a movie studio. It was shot in Param at Paramount in L.A. And it was just, you know, huge. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't believe it. In fact, you know, the uh, the first day I was on the set, you know, it was this huge set. If any of you, you know, if you've seen those Adams Family movies, in fact, the house set was so big it was in two separate studios. Paramount had the front of the house, and I think this called, maybe it was called the Review Studios. Had the back of the house. It was wild, and you know, it was like being in the Wizard of Oz. And so it was this huge studio fantasy film. And I got there at um, you know, they picked me up in the car at four thirty in the morning, and and drove me to the studio and the hair and makeup and oh, it, it just was and. It was like my whole life had led to this moment, and and when I was in the in the makeup chair, I, you know, I don't think anybody people were so jaded that makeup people were so got a kick out of this person. I was like, oh my god, and you know, I think Marlena Dietrich shot the you know the studio next door, and uh, you know all this, and you know, I, I I think it was refreshing for, for them in all the different departments. And then finally, I was let out. Oh, here I'm in this big drag costume and hat and wigs and feather boas and i go out to the set this enormous set and and I'm in my place and there's angelica houston and and joan cusack and i'm supposed to go over and you know when they say action and introduce myself you know darling and as soon as i swear as soon as they, they called action it kind of all well i've been up for so many hours at this point you know i've been up for 12 hours already i i just got so lightheaded that as soon as they called action I, <laughs> I, oh, no. I passed out, and and, and, and I sort of quickly kind of came to, and everybody was <laughs> running about, and and Angelica Houston was kind of like, "What the hell's going on here?" And um, they, uh, I had endeared myself to all the crafts people, you know, that there was this whole line of people were coming over the wardrobe people. Oh, honey, you're going to be great. You're just going to be great. And the hair and makeup people and darling you don't you're gonna be just great we're with you you know the, <laughs> the hair people and, and, and i'm just like oh God. And, and i'm sure that angelica houston was thinking who is this person and, and finally the director uh, barry sonnenfeld he had to stop things he said i guess we all have to know that this entire movie is about charles bush I don't know. <laughs> uh, so that i, I I'm, I'm fine and we, we proceeded <laughs> So, I love that. And then, you know, uh, there is a protocol in movies that's very different from this theater. Right. In a play, um, whether it's Broadway or whatever, you're there together, you know, in a small space, uh, eight shows a week for an indefinite amount of time. So I, I think, you know, a big star and somebody in the chorus very possibly could just chat, you know, in the wings. It's rather equal in a movie. It's different, you know. The, the star they're sequestered in, you know, their own trailer, whatever, and people with small parts are kind of kept in a pen somewhere else, and and it's just not really cool. You just don't. You, it's just a protocol. You, you just accept it. But I, I don't know. I guess being in when I think being in drag separates you. All rules are are off when you're in drag and there i was looking so glamorous and i i guess i also had a bit of a big fat ego thinking well you know i'm the star of vampire lesbians of sodom you know <laughs> off broadway uh that if i want to talk to angelica houston i'll talk to her so i just went over and i said angelica <laughs> i said if if you ever uh did a play a very good part for you would be um 
in the play The Chalk Garden, playing the part of Miss Madrigal. And 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 she uh, sort of lit up and she said, oh, you know, Deborah Carr did the, did the film. And she was a great friend of my father, the director, John Houston. And and she, uh, you know, was this, this great uh, part of my childhood. And so, you know, it kind of, it was, it was an interesting conversation. And I could see that some of the other, you know, small part actors thinking, like, how did he just go over there? Who does he think he is? <laughs> you do it. There you go. Boldness pays off sometimes. I think I read too on your story in your book about that, that while you were waiting, you had this uh, talk to someone about your key light. And I mean, lighting's an important part because later on you're interviewing Liza Minnelli and she sets your light as well. So I think you you surround yourself with the right people. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny with Liza Minnelli. Um, I was interviewing her for um, uh, this LGBT uh, news hour show called in, in in the life that used to be on pbs and we were uh in this little, little studio and she uh she was supposed to arrive at a what, what time was she supposed to arrive at two i think it was but we were told that at five o'clock she had she had to be gone so fine and, and so we waited and waited and like a lot of these uh, big star you know she was very late you know and and so it's now like you know four o'clock but we set up all the lighting you know preparation it was like a kind of like charlie rose was a big round table and two chairs and uh i have this thing about that i only like the left side of my face and so i'm just always everywhere just kind of like this you know (laughs) we but then we were told that Liza also likes the left side of her face, so I thought, well, we've got to do it for her, you know. So, so it was lit for her, and then when she finally arrived at, you know, after four, you know, four o'clock, I, I said to her, uh, and she was very, very nice, just very friendly and enthusiastic, and and I said, Liza. I said, you know, we have the same side that we prefer, but I'm such a gentleman. I've, I've given it to you. And and she said, Oh baby, we we can fix that. And I said, what, what? And suddenly she turned into the lighting designer and she was, you know, and she, she knows lighting. And she was like, say, lower that light and change this. But, and, and I could sort of see in the monitor that I was looking really good, you know, but it went on and on. It was like, you know, and I, I said, well, I think, Liza, I think we, you know, we need to get started. She said, no, baby, this is, you know, I'm a director's daughter. I'm a Manelli. This is what we do. And you're looking, fa- baby, you look fantastic already. And she, she kept, going, she was just having the time of her life, you know, being this lighting designer and, and doing a very good job. You know, she'd worked with Bob Fosse and, you know, and, uh, all, you know, the great stylist Scorsese and their, their cinematographers. She knows what she's doing. And so uh, finally now it's, we have to be done by five. It's, it's about 4.45 now. <laughs> and she, she finally, it was, you know, I was lit to her satisfaction, looked fantastic, but we had to somehow race through this interview in, in 15 minutes and, uh, and, we some, somehow got got it and and then you know we were all just kind of wiped out and she was just full of energy and and as she was <laughs> as she was leaving you know i sort of walked her to her car and she got into the car and and then she kind of put her her arm kind of through the open window and she's perfect dexterity grabbed my hand and said baby i want more and off they went. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is so amazing. 
let's get into some of your works. I mean, vampire lesbians. We got to talk. Obviously, you never know when anything's going to be a hit or not, but that really kind of changed your career. Talk about that experience from the beginning to what it became. Did you ever, in your wildest fantasies, think it was going to go that way? No, no. It just, I had had this career, you know, for about eight years as a solo performer throughout my 20s. And, right. and I, you know, I had no management and I just booked myself all over the country, San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Santa Cruz, Boulder, you know, all sorts <laughs> of places, just, you know, playing very, usually very small theaters. Uh, and, uh, but it was like being in vaudeville. I was learning my craft really and, right. and getting better and improving and, and learning. And then, um, but I wasn't, in certain sense, wasn't progressing. I still couldn't earn a living. And in between, these gigs, I still was being a, a you know cleaning apartments or um, or I, I, I since I draw well, I was a quick sketch portrait artist and I worked as one for a while there. I worked for an agency called Rent a Witch, where, which booked palmists and tarot card readers. So they sent me to parties as a psychic portrait artist, and I would draw people as they were in their previous mm -hmm. life. But then, but you know, it was so frustrating because I you know I wanted to be in theater and I, and. I just wasn't pro progressing. Uh, and the goal for me really was to earn my living doing theater. And that's sure. so hard to earn your living doing what you love is you know, a very precious thing and, and, a, and very right. elusive for, for most people. Uh, so, but I, I was working for a while, every, for a couple of summers at the New York Renaissance Fair as a portrait artist. I had my booth set up. And I met this fascinating gal, Bina Sharif, was from Pakistan. She was a very exotic woman, and she was hired as an actress at the Renaissance Fair to pretend to be a gypsy fortune teller and go around kind of harassing people there at the fairground. We got we became friends, and she invited me to see her do her performance piece way down in the East Village, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, an area called Alphabet City, because all the avenues are called Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue C, and right. in the early '80s. This was 1984. Only the deranged would go there. I mean, it was very dangerous and and completely ungentrified. You wouldn't recognize it now. It was totally and Madonna. It sort of came out of that milieu and the the artist Keith Haring. They were I remember learning about it from Rent. To be honest, that's how I first came across yeah. Alphabet yeah. City. Rent is about is about Alphabet City, and so all, um, because it was ungentrified, there were cheap rents. And so these very uh, interesting art galleries and, and dance clubs would pop up among the rubble, basically. Uh, so Bina was playing at a place called the Limbo Lounge. And, and even though I had grown up in New York City, uh, I had never been, and I lived in the West Village, I'd never gone all the way across town and been to this rather scary neighborhood. And I, I took my roommate, Ken Elliott, who was a aspiring director, and uh, he uh, we went down. To, you know, all the way, all the way. Sort of, we thought it was the end of the the world, basically. And we see this art gallery. It's like this little storefront, and it was kind of. And it was a, called Limbo Lounge. It was an art gallery and a, a bar, basically a bar, really narrow place. And we walked in there, and I was just dazzled, mesmerized 
they they didn't just put up pictures. It was an installation. It was this decadent kind of you know world, and you know a couple uh, torn uh, patent leather booths and leather booths, and but most people were sitting on the floor, and and the crowd there was kind of kind of gay, kind of straight, kind of goth, kind of punk, uh, and everybody seemed to speak in a strange dialect that was sounded vaguely Bulgarian, but you know they, they were like from Kansas. Yeah. And uh, it was it was fascinating. And Mina did her act. And I mean, honey, you just had to be there. You just had to be there. And I, I just was beside myself, turned to froth. And I said to Ken, as we got to do a show here, we just got to do something. And he, and, and he assumed I was going to do my act, but I didn't want to do my act. I wanted to do something really decadent. And, and you know, uh, I was just wearing kind of my act, just, you know, black pants and a shirt. You know, uh, I said, no, I, I want to be in drag. I want to be outrageous. And, you know, it's, it suits this this atmosphere. So I quickly, while I was working as an office temp, I wrote this little 40 minutes, I, I think it was only half hour at that point, sketch where I was a, 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 a vampire actress, you know, who lives for eternity. And, and I cast um, just, my, you know, people that I knew from different parts of my life that I'd collected they all knew me, but didn't know each other. And 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 Kathy, uh, I thought she she she's got to be involved. And we'd met about a year or so before, and and so she was going to be the stage manager as, as such. You know, pushed like the button of the tape recorder. You know, for the music start, that's kind of it. Um, and then she ended up doing our wigs, and she had never done wigs before. But she, uh, in the '60s, she'd worked in offices, you know, and as a typist. But, <laughs> And used to you know tease her hair a lot and put on wiglets so that all of that that past knowledge came back and suddenly she started creating these big wigs on us and so before we had a set or costumes we had wigs and we did the show just for you know it was supposed to be just for a weekend and we had so much fun we just had fun and we'd forgotten that that you could have fun in theater theater we thought theater fun but we had fun and we adored each other and we became a theater company called theater in limbo because we were playing at the limbo lounge and it just it really was remarkably small time i've made great hay out of this period of my life but it was really only about six months basically and we did we did all these different plays you know for nine performances each and i was just turning out these plays for this ensemble and and we all kind of were playing the same parts but in different historical periods and we were in the right place at the right time and uh and word got out because you know we had no money to publicize and you know there'd be long lines waiting outside the limbo lounge to see us do vampire lesbians of sodom or gidget goes psychotic Theodora, um, <laughs> she bitch of byzantium Pardon my inquisition, or kiss the blood off my castanets, and, uh, you know. And 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 particularly when we did vampire lesbians, uh, this the enthusiasm was so wild that one night after the show, we uh, Ken and I went back across town to West Village, where we lived, and we were at a restaurant we used to like to go to this Irish pub called McBell's, and we started counting out the money, and in piles of a hundred and and you know, we'd made over a thousand dollars and we only charged about three dollars to get in so there's a hat and and ken said is it possible that this thing that we've been doing for fun is actually the lucky break 
Is that possible? And so we tried to get producers to move it to a real theater. And they, some of them came down to the Lower East Side and they thought it was cute, but no thank you. And then um, Ken said, well, we just have to produce it ourselves. And he worked out a budget and it was $55,000, which is even then was ridiculously low, but it was a huge amount of money that, that we thought it and took us another about six months to to raise and everybody's really their their you know mother you know rose cohen uh their you know julie my friend julie her boss on wall street uh you know just you know my two aunts and my sister you know they they bought a share these, these young men who came to all of our shows they pooled together and bought a share and we, you know, we got the money together and and we, but we raised just enough to get us through opening night, and that's kind of kind of dumb because you know you, you really should have it you know a, um, a surplus to get you through till things pick up. You know maybe you should have enough to last you at least a month. We had enough sure. just opening night, and <laughs> uh, and the opening night came, and uh, the the Times critic had come actually a few nights before, which is what they do nowadays. And so we had 72 hours of just, you know, the agony, like, you know, it all depends on this guy's opinion. It all depends. Right. And, and if and if he doesn't like it and the show closes, you know, that's probably the end of theater in limbo. We probably wouldn't go back to the limbo lounge. And somehow I, I don't know what would have happened, really. It was like a dream. And the opening night came and, and we, we did the show and all of our friends that were being, and our investors all went down afterwards to the green room and we were having champagne toast toast and and somebody went, went outside and found an early edition of the times and came back in and said the review here it is the review's out and we were, and he, they threw it to me and i i just i just couldn't read it and i threw it to ken who was a very composed young man but he couldn't read it either and and finally my college roommate who was there ed he just grabbed the paper and 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 read it out loud and and it was this rave review and everybody got mentioned every everybody got mentioned and and predicted that the play would run for years it was, it, it was just magical moment and i i hardly can even talk about it now 40 years later i just uh went into the dressing room and nobody could see me it just was ever, that's fantastic uh, and and, I... and changed my life overnight and because sometimes you know on bro off broadway in your little theaters you you know you can have a hit and, you know or, or a good review and it doesn't really change things for me the, the day before i couldn't get a job you know as an office temp the next day i had the william morris agency and an icm you know bidding for my you know to represent me I mean, it was nuts I, I have so much, you know, I just, it was absolutely, we all consider it like Brigadoon, like it's just this miracle that happened to to all of us. Feel that just way. world a while to catch up with you. That's all, Charles. The world needed to catch up with that talent. Yeah. And then so many great things. I mean, um, when you based uh, Allergist Wife on your friend Barry, who I saw the story of a uh, Angela Lansbury and Cherry Jones and Sarah Paulson. Which came first, that Seder or the Allergist Wife? Uh, the Allergist Wife first. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, you know, I, I was having a very good career for many years, you know, from <laughs> 85 to, to 1999 as an off-Broadway playwright, actor, you know, and um, I, I really didn't have, I've, I've never really had the big plan, you know, like the big dream, like my goal is to have my own sitcom or my goal <laughs> is to on Broadway. I just kind of went from, you know, like just one thing that led to another and, you know, and worked hard for them, but I just didn't have like a overriding dream, which, you know, maybe I should have, um, but, uh, it circumstances led, led me to, uh, end up having this play on Broadway called The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. And um, I had a friend who was an allergist, Barry Cohn, very good friend of mine, retired allergist. And and he sort of inspired this, he and his wife inspired this play. And, and it was picked up by Manhattan Theater Club, which is one of the top nonprofit theaters in the country, really, particularly in New York. And then it, it was such a hit there that uh, it was moved to Broadway. Uh, but uh, the, what you're mentioning is is kind of funny. Is that um, Barry is kind of the uh, sort of the allergist to the stars in, in uh, okay. New York, particularly particularly musicals, because uh, you know so many performers in musicals have throat issues, and and he would be there backstage, you know, with free free medical service to anybody who's oh my, my voice you know and uh so it's become very became a very beloved figure and he invited me and my partner eric uh to a passover seder and i didn't feel like like going i'd been to enough passover seders you know and, but the, then i i knew that he had become friendly with angela lansbury and and this wonderful actress marion seldes who were doing a play in new york and angela had Lansbury had been away from the theater doing Murder, She Wrote for all those years. And this was her return to Broadway after many years. So I, I was half joking, really. I said, oh, Barry, you, sh you should invite uh, uh, Angela and Marion to the Seder. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. And so he did. And they said yes. And she had never been to a, a, a Seder. I don't think at that point she even played a Jew. And so so we got I got there. And we're all sitting around the table. And for those of you who've never been to a Passover Seder, there's the ancient text of the Haggadah, which tells of of the um, Israelites' escape from, you know, bondage. It's like you know, the Ten Commandments, basically, uh, the movie. <laughs> and so you have this, all of you are holding this little booklet, and, and you go around the table reading up one passage, and the next person reads the next passage, next person. And and I suddenly freak out. I think, oh my God, I'm acting with Angela Lansbury and Cherry <laughs> Jones and 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 uh, Cherry Jones and Marion Seldes and Sarah Paulson. They were all at the table. And so when it, it came to my turn, they were all reading with their beautiful voices. It came to my turn. I really tried to do my best. I you know I was enunciating and giving, <laughs> really giving a performance. And my when I finished my my turn, my partner Eric whispered in my ear, I can't believe you're reading the Haggadah as Joan Crawford. I said, I'm giving it vocal color. <laughs> and then of course I became very as we continued going around, I, I was doing like like actors do at at, at a play reading. I I'm flipping through and thinking like, okay, Angie does this one, Sarah does this one. Oh my it's terrible. I can't do anything with this. You know 
<laughs> but it's oh, like, I love that. You know, and even bigger. And then the Jews crossed. The, <laughs> and, and Eric whispered. Oh, my gosh. I never knew the word Jew had so many syllables. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, we have so much we could talk about, but we've already gone about 45 minutes. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. One last story we'll t I want to talk about, and then I want to get in to your movie that's out now and a couple of things. But you got to talk to me. I mean, you were such good friends with Joan Rivers and worked on quite a few projects with her. My funniest thing, I mean, she's mentioned throughout the book a few times, but I think the funniest thing I just about died is when she brought the Countess with her and Anthony up to your Christmas party one time. It just about rolled over on that one. Well, you know, I have, I have a friend in the building. See, my building way it works. It's like there's the lobby, and then there's the left side of the building and the right side of the building. And she'd been there a number of times. And it was, <laughs> I, I used to have a big kind of Christmas open house party on Christmas Day. And, uh, uh, and my friend Anthony, who's a, a psychiatrist, an uh, older gate fellow, and he lives on the, on the right side of the building. I'm on the left side. And so uh, Joan, you know, was with her very glamorous friend, the Countess Sons. She's a very beautiful countess. And uh, and somehow they, they went, instead of going to the left side, they went to the right side of the building. And my friend Anthony was by himself on Christmas Day, and he was just in his underpants, uh, watching TV, and suddenly his doorbell rings. He thought, "Who the hell is you know ringing my doorbell on, on Christmas Day?" And he thought, "The hell!" Thought, and he didn't put on a robe. He's just in his, in his, in his underpants. And he uh, he opens the door, and it's Joan Rivers and the Countess. <laughs> and, uh, and she's and she says, "Is this Joe's Bush's apartment?" And, and he said, "No, no, he's on the other other side." And uh, and he was a big fan, you know, of, of fashion police and everything. And, Said, oh, I'm a Joan Ranger, you know, and she, and she said, I think just put in your pants, you're coming with us. <laughs> so she I love that. I just about rolled over when I read that. Then when she came over, you know, she and the Countess were in these fabulous, you know, fur coats, and I had a rack outside the um, in the hallway where people could put up their you know, their coats, and they weren't going to put their furs there. So <laughs> looking around my apartment. And I had this hamper where I had my my old my extra sheets and towels, and so she takes out her coat and she's stuffing it in the hamper. You know? <laughs> she was really I love it. Everything, everything you wanted to be, and, and much, much more. Much. Uh, more. So much I want to talk. We're gonna have to have you back. I want to talk about. There's a Kim Novak story. It's amazing. There's all these stories that are absolutely amazing. But I want to go in. You have a, a movie coming out here, The Sixth Reel. I want to play a quick clip from that and talk about that on the other side. And uh, then we're going to finish things off here. So this is a uh, clip from the movie, The Sixth Reel. This is The Sixth Reel for my special guest today, Charles Bush. We'll be back on the other side in just a couple of seconds. You're listening to the Left of Straight Show right here in the Left of Straight Radio Network. Hey, Gerald, I'm here. Gerald. Your friend appears to have been dead for at least 24 hours. Would you believe that this is the fourth time I've discovered a dead body? Is there anything else you can tell me that's pertinent? I am an expert in the world of cinema memorabilia. I'll be the one to assess my uncle's estate. Old copies of TV Guide? It's a sickness! 
goodness! Your uncle is more of a hoarder than a collector. London After Midnight is the holy grail of lost films. <gasps> Jimmy, are you all right? This reel of film could very well be your death warrant. Can we watch it? Are you insane? There are people out there who will gladly slit your throat to possess 10 minutes of London After Midnight. It's at the top of my list of lost films that I would, without conscience, kill to see. Jimmy, I believe those vampires are calling. Don't pay you. attention to them. Jimmy! Let's make a run for it. You cannot escape us! You have it, you have it, you have it! Shut up, shut up, shut up! The film has to be sold and out of our hands as swiftly as possible. Congratulations on the cinematic find of the century. Are you free for dinner tomorrow night? It's gone. I can't believe you told him everything. You are a vile, despicable human being. To protect this film, I would sleep with a lot worse than you. The Museum of Modern Art is meeting me here tomorrow to personally pick up the movie. Helen and I have devised a foolproof plan. We shall strive to keep this as simple and undramatic as possible. We're looking for Jimmy Nichols. Don't know him. Never met him. Check. Bring the package downstairs. Check. Hello. That Max, take that from me. Jimmy. Shouldn't we be going up 8th Avenue? We will be taking you to a different destination. Can somebody please tell me what is going on? Huh? The film must be destroyed. No! Rumble into death! I think the four of you have seen too many movies. Shut your hole. The story begins in the 1960s. Oh, must we go back to the 60s? I'm on a diuretic. Shut your hole, Doris. I'm into it. All right, that was the sixth reel by my very special guest today, Mr. Charles Bush. Movie looks so great, Charles. I mean, you have Tim Daly, who I love, of course, uh, brother to Tyne Daly, and she has a special place for my heart as well. Jason Priestley in this. I mean, no, 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 he's not. He was in my movie Die, Mommy, Die. Oh, he was Die, Mommy, Die. You're right. He's not in this movie. Not, not this one. Although he's a great fella. I wouldn't mind it, but he's not in this one. I'm confusing them all. All right. Well, remind him. Give everyone the plot again real quick of The Six Reel. Six Reel. It's a contemporary movie. It takes place today, but it's very much like a 1960s uh, caper film. And so I, I play this fellow, uh, Jimmy, who's a, a, a collector and dealer of, of classic film memorabilia. And he's a rather unscrupulous fellow. And somehow <laughs> he... Uh, He's been taking care of a, an elderly friend who uh, who then um, uh, then dies, and he's supposed to dispose of all of his elderly friends. You know, he was a, this guy was a hoarder, and so he has to go through all this crap. You know, and it turns out that this old man has a, a niece, who's his executor, living in in, in Boca Raton. And she she uh, shows up in New York, very skeptical about you know this person Jimmy who she'd never <laughs> heard of, you know. And so uh, she we're going through this you know this hoarder's you know debris, and we discover that in his closet in a, in a locked up little mini refrigerator a a, re a reel of film that's from this. This actually is true. A, a legendary lost horror movie, uh, vampire movie, uh, starring Lon Chaney, London After Midnight. 
and it could be of great value. Just it's this one, the sixth reel out of a six reel movie. And so uh, the thing is, do we do the right thing and give it to uh, the Museum of Modern Art or TCM, um, or do we sell it for a lot of money to a private collector? And that's good. But but then it turns out we we start finding out that there are five other reels around and we have to get the reels and and they're stolen from us and we have to get them back and and we get into wacky disguises and you know and it's uh, uh hijinks and sue and so it's hijinks a, and sue sounds amazing it's playing now september 22nd which is this weekend starting at the look cinema that's mm-hmm. exciting to have it in the big screen there right you're going to be able to get down there and enjoy it uh-huh yes it's playing for for one week one week um uh, at this new one of these new, it's this new theater, movie theater on West 57th Street. It's one of these theaters where you can get a three course meal and have it served to you at your at your table at the the you know the screening room. And uh, yeah, so we'll see. You know, it'd be nice if um, uh, if this led to to other cities, which it might be. And and uh, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be fantastic. You're going to sell out that theater. I can tell, my friend. Oh, I hope so. Well, Charles, it's been exciting talking to you. We're going to play out in a couple of seconds. Uh, You did a fantastic tribute. um, I think it was back in maybe June or May or something um, for where you sang both sides now, one of my favorite Joni Mitchell song, such heart, such feeling in that. After this book, I mean, you have this fantastic book out. Do you feel like you've kind of looked at both sides now? Are you excited where you're at right now? I am. I'm at a very, very good place in my life. and. I've I've looked back, and and now I got to look forward. I've got to try. I love it. Keep keep it moving. We have to have you back because I have so many more stories I have to talk to you about. Let everyone know where they can find your website. They can find a lot of great things all about this on your website. Give them your web address. It's just very simple, CharlesBush.com. But that website is so. My website is so inclusive that you can never get to the end of it. It's like finding the source of the Nile. It just. (laughs) going there's always something more it is an amazing website and again the autobiography is out now leading lady a memoir of a most unusual boy as i said i've read it it's an amazing story charles bush thanks for all you've done for uh for drag for queer theater for everything it's been my pleasure being able to get to talk to you sir i've had a ball thank you for having me on You're very welcome. Stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to do a special five questions with Charles. Be sure to look for that next week. We appreciate you. Look for this book. And thanks for listening to Left to Straight Show. We'll be back next week with a brand new interview. Have a great week, everyone. Our next pianist is an actor and a composer, and he often plays for our next singer. Please welcome the pianist, Tom Judson. He's a playwright, actor, director, novelist, cabaret performer, and drag icon. I'm sure you've seen one or more of his plays, like The Tale of Allergist's Wife, or Vampire Lesbians of Sondheim, Sodom. Here is Charles Bush.
Well, about, I guess about a week and a half ago, I saw Marilyn at 54 Below. You know, she's such a show-off. You know, she, she stood for the entire hour and a half show. And, uh, and then I, well, of course, I had done my act there about a week before and sat for 80% of my show. <laughs> I'll be damned if I put my ass on a chair tonight. <laughs> and there isn't any. Anyway, okay, we're going to do a lovely song by, by Joni Mitchell. Rows and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air Feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still, somehow, it's cloud illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing way you feel when every fairy tale comes real. I've looked at love that way, but now it's just another show. You'll leave them laughing when you go, and if you care, don't let it show. Don't give yourself away. And love from both sides now, from give and take, and still somehow it's love's illusions I recall. I really don't know love at all. and fears and feeling proud to say I love you right out loud schemes and dreams and circus crowds I've looked at life that way but now old friends are acting strange they shake their heads and they say I've changed well something's lost but something's gained in living every day I've at life from both sides now, from win and lose, and still, still, somehow, it's life's illusions I recall. I really don't
for listening to the left of straight show be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast distributor and please give us a five-star rating so more listeners can find us you can follow us on social media and be sure to check out our website www.leftofstraightradio.com for contests and other news and information see you next week